Hi everyone, thank you for joining us. My name is Natalie, and this is The Next Page, the podcast of the UN Geneva Library and Archives. This episode brings you a conversation on peace. How is it defined and achieved in communities and societies? And how does it stick? Our director, Francesco Pisano, speaks with Scott Weber, the president of Interpeace. Interpeace was originally founded in 1994 by the United Nations, but as it evolved, it became an independent, non-governmental organization with continued strong links with the UN. And Scott has dedicated his career to supporting people in many parts of the world to build peace for themselves. You will hear his insights into what he sees as vital to measure and to focus on as communities seek to build peace amid conflict and after conflict. He also shares what he thinks are some key challenges in current peacemaking and peace building, and some ways in which Interpeace is framing peace processes and tools in different ways, and building on the knowledge and resilience of communities to see peace grow and stay. If you'd like to find out more about Interpeace's work and also Scott Weber, we have some links for you in the podcast description. Thanks for tuning in. Here's the conversation. Hello, everyone. Welcome to um, the next page, the podcast of the UN Library and Archives Geneva. Today, I'm joined by Scott Weber, who's the president of Interpeace. Scott and I go back quite a long time, my first decade of working with the UN. He was there too, working for the UN. Then he joined Interpeace after working in several positions in the UN Secretariat, and he's now the president. He will introduce himself in a second, and before we go into the heart of today's episode, which is about peacemaking, peace building, anything doing with peace. And Scott has been dubbed by me the traveler peacemaker and I'm very happy to have you here with us, Scott, although this is on Skype, so I apologize to the audience for any sound or background noises they may hear. But before we go to the heart of the episode, Scott, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Thank you, Francesco. It's great to be back with you. My name is Scott Weber, so I'm the president of Interpeace, as you said. Uh, I'm American and French, father of two. And I am, have devoted my career to helping people build peace for themselves and to find solutions to their challenges. So I'm really pleased to have the chance to share some thoughts with your audience and to chat with you again, Francesco. That's wonderful. And thank you for your time again. So let's um, start with Interpeace. Not everyone out there may know Interpeace. So why don't you tell us about the, the institution, what it is, how it operates, and what makes it so special after all? Sure. So Interpeace is an international organization. Uh, it was originally created by the UN when the UN was struggling to understand, after the end of the Cold War, how to deal with what had emerged as a new form of conflict. We saw, unlike the expectation of greater peace and stability flowering all over the world after the end of the Cold War, we saw the opposite. We saw a degeneration of situations, primarily into civil wars, internal wars. 
and wars that were characterized by a high degree of non-state actors involved in the violence. And the UN was not particularly well equipped to deal with that new form of conflict and thus created uh, interpeace in its previous incarnation to first better understand this new form of conflict, understand the actors and how to address it, but then to initiate processes that would help societies overcome those conflicts. We started out in places like Eritrea, Mozambique, Guatemala, and in Somalia, uh, after the collapse in Somalia. And it has grown ever since to become an international organization of its own right. We still have a very special relationship to the UN system, and the Secretary General of the UN has a permanent seat on our board to represent that relationship. But we were deliberately created to do what the UN wants done, but can't necessarily do itself. What makes us special are a number of things. One is that we've learned over the years that for peace to be sustainable, the people of that society need to be the ones to build the peace and not outsiders. That's what makes Interpeace's work effective is our work through local people who are themselves going to lead the process of building peace in their own society. We help them to do that. We help train them, equip them, accompany them over a long period of time in order to make sure that they are able to build the peace in their own societies. The other aspect I think is critical is that, and this is maybe another answer to your your point about why don't more people know about interpeace is that we really do believe in the saying that it's amazing what you can achieve when you don't care who takes the credit. We see that there are so many actors who are there to wave their own flag and to say, look at what we did, look how great that was. And there's, of course, an, an imperative in that sense uh, for funding and other reasons to be able to show what you've done. But what we found to be much more effective is the ability for the Somalis to be able to say, look what we did, or the Rwandans to say, look what we did, or the Libyans to say, look what we did. Because once they have they have that sense of achievement and they can say that they did this for themselves, that creates a precedent. And it's a powerful precedent that allows them to do it again the next time. And that's what we're really after. The purpose of Interpeace is not to do away with conflict or to, rather to resolve specific conflicts, although we do. The real objective of Interpeace is to equip societies with the ability to manage their own conflicts nonviolently, not just now, but over time. So the real objective of our work is to build the capacities of a society to manage its own conflicts in nonviolent ways. As you go about carrying out this, this objective of Interpeace, how do you make sure you're being successful? What is that you look at in terms of you know, success of your operations over a certain, a certain amount of time, what is that you measure? Well, the, the most important thing to measure is the resilience of society to be able to handle its own challenges in an inclusive manner, in a peaceful manner, in a manner that is seen as legitimate in society. And that is what we need to measure most of all, I would say. Not that uh, a project was impactful in, in these these metrics, but rather is are those results sustainable without us in the room, without us being involved? That's, I think, the real measurement of success. So what we want the whole international community to take on board, not just uh, Interpeace and its own teams, but everybody, is the notion that the real success is the ability for societies to not need us from the outside to assist them. 
And that is a difficult thing to measure sometimes, uh, but it's the most important thing to measure. In the process of building peace, however, and over time, what we are we might help to resolve a specific conflict around land or to address uh, an issue of resource allocations in in a scarce environment, or it could be around helping the society to develop its constitution. Now, whatever it might be, what we try to see emerge throughout these processes and, and measure is uh, also trust. The trust is the software that makes the hardware work in these societies. There's too much of a focus on the hardware, on building up the infrastructure of a society, on focusing on training and equipping a police force rather than looking at the software, which would be the degree of trust that people have in that police force. So we have to be careful that when we're focusing so much on capacities in terms of the hardware, that we miss the critical element of people's ability to trust those institutions or trust those solutions. And that's what Interpeace is most concerned with, is that degree of trust being built along the way. So that's what we also seek to measure. A few weeks ago, I was in a gathering of quite high-level diplomats, and you were giving a talk, and I was uh, quite impressed by your ability to concentrate in a little less of 20 minutes many principles that you as a professional and also Interpeace work with. One of the sentences you pronounced that you, you said was about what makes peace stick. And uh, I, I would like to go now to what makes peace stick. But before we go there and you tell us what is the recipe to making that happen, I would like you to tell us what is from your observation deck that you think are the main problems with contemporary peacemaking around the world? Well, there are, I would say, five top-line problems with the way in which the world is currently seeking to build peace in, in conflict zones. The first is that, and this is to a large extent also a list of reasons why we need to rethink uh, peace processes quite fundamentally and change the parameters on, on which uh, our work to build peace is based. The first is that too many peace processes are focused on what we call negative peace, which means stopping the fighting. Negative peace is to try to create conditions whereby people will stop shooting each other, or they'll stop trying to kill each other, but it doesn't focus enough on, on what we would call positive peace. And positive peace is the effort to build legitimacy and trust in society, an inclusive solution for the entire society. So the first problem is too much of a focus on stopping the fighting and not enough of a focus on what, what elements would be necessary for the society to be inclusive and peaceful. The second problem is that too many peace processes are elite-driven and top-down, thus, uh, and uh, externally driven. When what we've learned makes peace stick is that the peace is actually built from within society and it's built in an inclusive manner. So when you have highly exclusive, top-down, elite-driven processes, they are not even inclusive of the elites of society, let alone of the rest of society. And we tend to reward, in fact, those with the guns who, through their violence, what we call in French la prime à la violence, who, through their violence, get a seat at the table to determine the parameters of what comes next. And they shouldn't be given that power we shouldn't be rewarding violence that way. And yet that's how it's done currently. So we know that for peace to be sustainable, it has to be an inclusive peace that people can really buy into. 
and yet the current way that we're doing that is not is not leading to that result. The third problem is that we tend to be quite obsessed, I would say, with the negotiating table, as if just getting more people to the table somehow will make the peace more sustainable. And that's not what the evidence bears out. There are many other efforts, uh, initiatives that need to be pursued at other levels of society and over time that are going to be critical for peace to stick. And when we focus too much on the uh, negotiation process, on the mediation process at the mediation table, like current talks in Syria or Yemen or, or, or a number of others, it, it sucks the oxygen out of the room for the many other efforts that are going to be needed to buttress the peace. And often when things get stuck at the negotiating table, it's those other processes that will allow a peace process to actually get get going or, or, or restarted. So the obsession with the negotiating table as if that a peace process is a mediation process is wrong. It also makes us understand that we need to reframe a peace process as, as a 20-year process, not as a mediation effort over, over several months. Because for peace to be sustainable, it takes time. It takes about 20 years. So how do we reframe our, our notion of what a peace process includes to be on a 20-year time frame rather than a, a mediation process? The fourth problem, I would say, is that most peace agreements are not implemented. About 35% of them are not implemented at all. And of the 65%, a good majority of them are barely implemented or they're implemented by neglect and, and left to die a slow death of neglect um, and, and non-implementation over time. You often have a situation where after a peace agreement is signed, you'll, you'll go to elections and the new leaders who come into power at that point weren't the ones who signed the agreement in the first place and don't feel any loyalty or, or obligation or, or responsibility towards it. So the way that we put so much of a focus on a peace agreement, it actually uh, diverts our attention from the real task, which is all the many different efforts that are needed for of collaboration between the different parts of society to make that peace uh, sustainable. And the fifth problem is that we, as an international community approaching peace processes are too focused on the tools in our toolbox that we are seeking to implement those tools in these societies rather than to look at what a context is ready for and adapting those approaches or those tools to what the context is ready for. A good example of that is reconciliation commissions. We still have too much of a knee-jerk kind of a reaction of, of proposing a, a, a truth and reconciliation commission after a war when that country might not be ready at all for such a process, or even the term reconciliation might be too controversial, or those that might get appointed to lead that commission might not bring it legitimacy, and therefore it would undermine efforts to actually implement reconciliation. Another example would be our, uh, what we call DDR processes, uh, disarmament, demobilization, and re reintegration processes, where we have a tendency to reintegrate non-state combatants, uh, child soldiers and others, uh, into armed forces of countries. And it's almost, it's a poisoned gift to those institutions, those security institutions, to integrate many of these uh, non-state combatants into the military. When you're a criminal in a, in a militia, and you, then you put on a uniform, you st basically stay a criminal in uniform now. And so we have to rethink how we approach disarmament and demobilization efforts 
so that they are better rooted in what the context actually requires and what is appropriate to build positive peace, as I said at the beginning, legitimacy and trust in society and in institutions. So those are the five kind of, I would say, headline problems with the way we approach peace processes, but there are many others. And in order for peace to stick, to come back to your point, we have to rethink the way that we're framing peace processes, look at them over a 25-year period, 20, 25-year period, focus on positive peace, ensure that they're not just elite-driven and outside-driven, but they're internally driven and that they're inclusive. Look at all the many things that need to happen along the way, not just a mediation process, and make sure that the context is king and queen, that it determines what it, what assistance we bring uh, and that we adapt ourselves to the context, not the other way around. So when you look at these five headline problems as you as you define them, and you said there are many, many others, I wonder in your long experience going around the world, meeting all these elites, but also all these ordinary people and try to include them and understand what the context is, there must be some pattern, or maybe there isn't, among these problems that surface across the globe. What is really the key one? What is the one or the couple of those that you've seen recurring all the time in your work to try and build peace? I think we, we, we forget a number of things. One is that Peace building is about people. You know, it's about people. It's not about institutions. Uh, and we have to make sure that the solutions that we seek to build have buy-in from the people of the society. You know, even even the UN with its we the peoples of the United Nations and its charter, the first line of its charter, we, we've forgotten that somehow. We we're too much focused on the member states and on the, the, the macro-level political sector when there's a complete disconnect between the leadership levels of many of these countries and their people. And it's really building peace in, in these societies is about that social contract. It's about bringing the, the leadership and the people closer together so that there's a greater sense of legitimacy and trust in that relationship, in that social contract. And so how does a peace process reinforce that? If that were our, the end goal, you would never design a peace process the way we currently do driven by outsiders, including sometimes the UN as an outsider, and on, on, a, on a pace and, and with a degree of participation, which is not what will help that peace to be sustainable. So I think what, what ultimately is, I think, one of our biggest challenges, what I see as a pattern of behavior constantly in peacemaking, is that the egos of institutions and individuals Uh, be it national leaders or international ones, get in the way of building peace. Egos, institutional and personal egos, is one of the biggest challenges to building peace today. Uh, and it gets in the way. That's why I come back to this point that if you can operate along the lines of it's amazing what you can achieve when you don't care who takes the credit, we can be much more successful in the way that we build peace in these countries, really. And it, making sure that it's about them building their own peace for themselves and not about how much we can be effective at building peace for them. So, Scott, if this was a, a, a recipe, the one ingredient that makes peace sticks more than anything else, is this is what you just said? People for people? And recognizing that it's primarily about trust, that you can, you can have a food security strategy for a country 
but that can actually create conflict or build trust. Depends how it's done. You can have a security strategy for a country that is seen as oppressive by its people or seen as as uh, as creating greater safety and security for the people. It depends how it's done. But if you keep trust as the North Star in, in everything you're doing, as the guiding principle of what your efforts to build these institutions is really about, then it actually does contribute to peace. And, and that's the difference. And so when we don't have that as our guiding principle, we can do a lot of technical work that actually doesn't build greater stability in these societies. And that's just the, 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 the big reminder, the one red thread throughout it all is really trust. Scott, thank you for that. So I wanted to move on and talk about Africa. And the reason why I want to talk about Africa with you is because when I looked up your, your website, I realized that a lot of what Interpeace does is done in the African continent. And so maybe you can share with, with our audience your, your personal experience in Africa and the kind of uh, situations that you've been faced uh, with there. Sure. Well, you know, I think the focus on Africa is maybe not surprising, but it's it's for two main reasons, I would say. Indeed, there are major challenges that remain across the continent in terms of building that social contract we were talking about earlier and strengthening it. So therefore, Interpeace is uh, putting a lot of its attention on countries like Somalia and Libya and, and Kenya and, and Congo and, and Burundi, Cote d'Ivoire and others. There's another reason why we're focused on Africa, which is that it is also an absolute classroom of lessons for us in terms of how to build resilience. Many years ago, the, the Somalis challenged us to look at Somalia through another lens. They said, why are you so focused on mapping out the conflict zones of Somalia? Why aren't you looking at the parts of Somalia that are not burning, that are not in conflict? And that's what led us to initiate a methodology that we call peace mapping, to complement conflict mapping, to look at where is it not conflictual in a society and why is actually more instructive than looking at the parts that are burning or that are divided. Because what it helps you to understand is the are the endogenous sources of resilience that communities have and utilize to prevent many of the same dimensions of divisionism and, and polarization that have sunk other parts of the country. And those lessons are locally owned, locally grown solutions. And by the way, they're replicable. So by, by starting with the lens of having a, uh, an analysis of what are the strengths of a society, what are its various forms of resilience, when you then look at what are the challenges and fragilities of society, it offers so many powerful lessons, tools, and examples that can be built upon to help a society emerge from its conflicts nonviolently and sustainably. So we have a focus on Africa for those two reasons, not just because it has, of course, uh, many, many challenges in terms of fragility, but probably mainly because it is an amazing uh, resource of resilience. And it's not for us to come and teach uh, African nations how to build peace. It's rather for us to come and help them learn from their own examples and their own source of resilience and, and help them replicate those. In terms of specific parts of Africa, we are engaged in many different parts indeed. We have been engaged in places like Somalia since 1995, 
uh, and helping the Somalis in many different ways, but always, always with the Somalis in the lead of their uh, state building and peace building process. What we saw with Somalia, which is something that is relevant and replicable elsewhere, is that when they uh, had a collapsed state after the after 1991, when the regime of Siad Barre fell apart, they had a challenge of rebuilding uh, some form of governance that they could all agree on. And that took many, many years. But one of the lessons that the Somalis taught us was that what works most effectively for them is first to focus on peace building, on the reconciliation between clans or sub-clans, and then for them to cement that peace with forms of governance that are legitimate to them. So the governance came to cement a peace rather than the models that we often see elsewhere applied, which is to bring systems of governance and hope that that will trickle down and create greater peace and stability. The opposite was true in Somalia. You had to, when, when everything else was collapsed, you had to rebuild trust and, and legitimacy from below, like a tree that grows from the ground up. The same is true with governance systems in Somalia. And if we have pretty stable north of Somalia today and an increasingly functional uh, system of government in other parts of Somalia, it's because the Somalis have been applying that principle. And that's why we're even talking about our federal system in Somalia today. Back when we started there, that was a, that was a bad word, the, the, the federalism word. But they were able to build these systems of governance because they started with legitimacy first and, and governance second. In places like Congo, which is uh, the size, as you know, uh, Francesco, of, of Western Europe, it's a massive country and a massively complex country and diverse country. The challenges are can seem overwhelming. And yet there are some major signs of, of, of hope and progress being made in, in Congo. It's especially powerful to see that the Congolese want, in fact, their government to be more involved. They want the government to be more present. We often talk about in conflict countries that, uh, that one of the problems is the absence of the state. But it's more often the problem, in my experience, the, that the presence of the state is, is problematic. Uh, when, when a state is predatory, when a state is abusing its own people, as we see in many different countries, that it's actually the presence of the state that's a problem. When in a country like, like Congo, which is so vast, where the presence of the state is very difficult to maintain across such a large territory, the people of Congo are actually asking for the state to be present. But the question is, what state? What kind of state? And that's where they want to enter into a process of negotiation, a process of, of discussion about what kind of behavior of a state are they expecting. But it's encouraging to see that they're actually inviting the state to be more present. They want that uh, third-party presence uh, that a state represents to help them in their local communities manage their land or their resources or their security or whatever it might be. So we're helping that relationship to be uh, established or re-established on better terms at the moment uh, between the, the national government, the provincial governments, and the people in many of these in many parts of, uh, of Congo. And uh, I'm very hopeful, in fact, that that uh, will get onto a better footing over the coming years. Places like uh, the Sahel, we're very involved in Mali and Burkina Faso. These are countries that are have vast territories that are difficult to govern, like the north of Mali, very difficult to gather, govern. 
And yet, when we started working in a place like Mali, the international community's analysis was that this was a problem of the North. This was a problem of extremists in the North and a separatist movement in the North. When we started to engage uh, Malian to Malian, because as I said earlier, we only work through local local people, the, the picture was quite different. Uh, when the Malians defined what the problem was, they, they talked about a, a failure of governance. They, they talked about a, f- a failure of inclusion, a failure of the, the constitution not being properly implemented. Uh, and they did not talk about the North being a problem. It was an all of Mali problem. And it, this is part of the issue that we need to be very careful about, is that when we define what the problem is from the outside, without a, a proper consultation of the, of the people of that society, we tend to start to define solutions that are based on our notion of what the problem is and not theirs. And so it's very important that the starting point is uh, of a peacebuilding process is first achieving common local agreement on what the problem is that needs to be addressed. Because if you don't, you can get completely off track. And then Mali, the, the reason why the work that we're doing is having, I think, significant impact is because it's based on a Malian definition of what the problem is and building on their sources of resilience as to how to address those. So those are just a few examples uh, from across the continent. And that's a perfect segue into talking about a little bit about the methodology that you use in prison. Thank you for spending time telling us about these examples. Now, can you tell us a little bit about how you apply your methodology? For example, I was very interested in what you call the track six, and maybe you can tell us about track six and how it applies to, in practice, to these situations that you just mentioned, one or two of those. Sure. So we uh, recognize that much of the challenge is about a rapprochement, a compressing of the space between leadership and the people in these societies in order to make that social contract more meaningful. And in uh, peacemaking terms, we use the the references of track one work, which is uh, about engaging the leadership of a country or the international community, the president or ministers or rebel leaders. That's very track one type of work with what we call track two, which is civil society, churches, uh, media, uh, NGOs, uh, and associations, with work then at track three level, which is very much in the, at the village level with individuals and specific groups in communities. And organizations tend to situate themselves along that spectrum from track one to track three. Some of them even call themselves a track one and a half. A kind of organization looking at bridging the, the gap between leaders and civil society. Interpeace has, has defined its role very much in what we call track six, which is one plus two plus three. We see the, the value being in actually linking those levels more deliberately in everything that we do. So if we're helping the Somalis, for example, deal with their piracy problem, as we did back in, in 2011, 2012, in those years, we uh, didn't just work with the big players who were trying to address the insecurity issues at sea. We recognized by talking to the villagers involved in the piracy problem that it was actually a problem on land, not a problem at sea. And yet 98.5% of the money being spent on that, on the anti-piracy campaign was being spent at sea. So again, like I said earlier, when you, when the outsiders are the ones to define what the problem is, 
they can be willing to spend, in that context, it was $6.1 billion a year on the wrong solution to the problem. So our effort in, in a context like that was to link the, the life experience, the lived experience of the people involved in the piracy problem at the village level, who were the ones actually conducting that, that, that piracy, with not just civil society and the leaders of the territories, but then with the international community, so that everyone understood across that vertical spectrum what the real issue was, and that the people on the ground who were most involved could own the, the change that was needed in a context like that. The same is true in the Congo. We are working in places like South Kivu at a very, very local level, where the insights as to why different groups and different ethnic groups are, are have a historical grievance and why they are finding it difficult to live together, we're making sure that that understanding is properly influencing the way the national government is then bringing solutions to that region. And the more we can connect the levels deliberately, and it doesn't happen deliberately unless you design it that way, the more we can deliberately design a change process to address that vertical spectrum, the more effective it is in our in our experience. And that's why we, we call all our work in a track six manner. So that means, just to remind our audience, that there are three sort of institutionalized known tracks, track one, two, and three, and you operate track, you call it track six because you, you basically work on the sum of them. There is not that there is a track five or a track four. Correct. So it's, Correct. it's something that is peculiar to, to Interpeace. That's right. And that is quite, uh, quite powerful uh, as a way of focusing on what is that is important, which is a sort of a holistic way of intervening in these situations. Now, I wanted to ask you, you know, our podcast is about advancing the conversation of multilateralism. And I wanted to ask you about the nexus, if there is any, and I suspect there is, between multilateralism and peace building. Sure. First, if I can say a word about multilateralism, we are currently living through the worst pandemic in our lifetimes, um, the COVID-19 pandemic. And like the weather, like terrorism, pandemics don't know borders. And so the current challenges that we're facing and have been facing over the past years in multilateralism are evidence of, uh, I think, a false, a false dichotomy between nationalism and international solidarity. Even if you have a nationalistic bent, you cannot ignore the fact that what happens elsewhere will affect your country and your population. We are simply too connected, and life and the pace of our economies and our travel and everything has accelerated to such a degree that there's no such thing as, as real borders between our countries. So we, we're all in, in this together. We're all in these challenges together, whether we like it or not. And so I think it's a false dilemma, uh, this notion that nationalism versus multilateralism is even possible. So on multilateralism more generally, we are living through a difficult period, however, in that there is a loss of trust in multilateralism by communities around the world that don't see uh, solutions. They don't, they're not looking to the multilateral system at the moment for solutions. We see a difficult uh, relationship in the Security Council between the major powers. We see a difficult collaboration between countries and between regions. There's obviously a lot of very positive examples to give in 
but there are also, I think, increasingly challenges in a, to the multilateral uh, sector. So what I would say is that I think we need to make sure when we look at the link between multilateralism and peacemaking and peace building, we have to recognize that building peace is primarily a national effort, not an international one. I think one of the one of the brilliant successes of the UN since its founding was the pretty significant reduction in international conflicts. But what we've seen, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, uh, rise is the number of, of national or civil wars. And so the, the effort today to build peace is primarily a national one, not a multilateral one. The problem is that since, I guess, since 9-11, I would say, these national conflicts have become increasingly internationalized again. So countries like Libya are not just struggling amongst themselves, uh, Libyans amongst themselves, in sorting out their conflicts, but they are also a chessboard of international actors who are all playing on that terrain. And that has complexified conflict to a large degree. And that requires us to apply principles like a Traxic approach, as I was saying, to be able to link the international level track one politics and geopolitics of peacemaking with the realities of what people are living on the ground. And in a country like Libya, where the power is not at the national level, it's at the local level, there is no choice but to engage the local in trying to bring about a geopolitical answer. And there's no choice but to engage the geopolitical level in order for a local solution to be possible. So, you know, the, the, there is a, a natural link between multilateralism and peacemaking, but we have to remember that it's primarily a national process with an international dimension and not an international process with a national dimension. That's very well said. Thank you for, for being so clear on that. Scott, as we wrap the postcards up, any final thoughts for our audience, something that you want them to remember from your experience as a traveling peacemaker? I think the, the thing that gives me the greatest joy and, and, and hope as I work around the world, as I travel, is to see the power that comes from people sorting out their own problems for themselves. I think the, the ownership of solutions by the people concerned is what is, what is critical to the success of peace processes. And for those of us on the outside that are seeking to help bring about these solutions, I think humility is possibly the most important character trait involved. As I said earlier, I think that one of the biggest obstacles to building peace are personal institutional egos. And the more we can recognize that this is not about us, it's not about being able to wave our own flag or slapping our logo onto a building it's really about how much the people of that society are able to say with pride that they did this. I think that is the most important principle in peace building, uh, in my experience. And when you are able to see that happen and to see people build on that pride and, and carry on the legacy and the, the precedence of what they've done, it's, it's magic. And so, like with anything in our lives, we don't want people to come in and tell us how to live our lives. We don't want people to come and tell us how to raise our kids. We don't. It's the same thing with building peace. The peace has to come from them. So the lessons that I shared during this podcast about peace mapping, about uh, helping to recognize the source of resilience in society, not just source of fragility, 
the importance of making sure that whatever you do, be it food security or or on uh, health issues, whatever, that part of the objective is to build trust in those systems and between people, to leave behind a residue or, or an impact of trust in their relationships with one another. Those are the things that I, I think we need to put at the center of how we build peace. But that requires us as outsiders who are involved to see that it isn't about us. It's about them building solutions for themselves. And when we do that, everything's possible. Scott Weber, president of Interpeace, thank you so much for being with us on this podcast. Thank you, Francesco. It was a pleasure.